and welcome to the second season of Genetically Speaking, the podcast for the American Society of Human Genetics, where we explore the human stories behind human genetics and genomics research. I'm your host, Chris Gunter. Today, I'm looking forward to discussing a more classic paper, which I will admit that I'm the one who actually nominated this for the podcast. It was published in 2014 in the journal Nature Genetics, entitled A Framework for the Interpretation of De Novo Mutation in Human Disease. We have with us today two of the authors, Caitlin Samoha, I hope I said that right, and Ben Neal. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see both of you. Thanks, Chris. Lovely to see you too. So can you, I know it's been a while, but can you expand on what led you to select this research topic? Um, I'll take a crack at that first. So when I joined Mark Daly's lab as a graduate student, uh, exome sequencing had just hit the scene. And there had already been a couple of studies out where they had used exome sequencing to identify de novo mutations in really rare disease. And they found that looking at unrelated individuals, de novo mutations were occurring in the exact same gene. And so we tried to apply this to a slightly more complex phenotype, uh, the autism spectrum disorders. And in a 2012 paper that Ben led, we had sequenced 175 and a couple of collaborators around the US had sequenced close to about a thousand, I think. However, we didn't really see de novo mutations piling up in the exact same gene like these rare disease papers had seen. And we were in a tricky situation of how do we determine that the de novo mutations that we see in the same gene are there because it's an interesting gene, because it's important to disease, or are there just because de novo mutations happen? And we're just going to, as we sequence 1,000 people or 10,000 people, we'll start to see them accumulating by chance. And so the real motivation behind this work was how can we apply a really rigorous statistical framework, as in the title, to um, determine when the accumulation of de novo mutations in a gene was important versus when it was just due to chance. I, I agree with everything Caitlin said. I, I just had a few, I think, accents. One is, you know, some genes were piling up mutations because they were big genes like Titan. And it's sort of like, well, I don't think Titan's necessarily involved in autism spectrum disorders. Like it could be, you know, we're geneticists, we're open-minded, we try and be systematic, but we also try and be principled. And just observing a de novo mutation in Titan didn't feel like sufficient justification to be interested in Titan as a gene. You know, for those that don't think about genes all the time, that's the biggest gene in the genome. So the kind of expectation is, is the biggest there. And then I think the, the other thing is, you know, the, the three efforts that were sort of published together in 2012, and then there was a, a fourth from Cold Spring Harbor, um, you know, that, that provided a kind of data set of a thousand trios. And, you know, by the time you're getting to a thousand trios, you're definitely seeing this phenomenon of piling up um, in the context of autism spectrum disorders. And so it, it really was important to sort of establish what our baseline expectation is. And, and I think the one thing that's a bit different about this framework from a lot of the other frameworks that we would more typically use in disease studies is rather than trying to get at what the baseline expect, you know, like what a controlled de novo mutation rate is for a given gene, uh, we tried to model it. And, and that's, a, that's a kind of real departure from a kind of case control approach. But it's grounded in the fact that the expectation for de novo mutation for any given gene is very, very small. So we'd have to do like hundreds of thousands of trios to get really well-conditioned expectations for people without something like autism spectrum disorders. 
to really do an association test. And so the, the framework that we developed to you know, kind of explicitly model the mutation rate was inspired by the opportunity to boost the statistical power to detect genes without having to go and collect the like 100,000 plus trios that we would need to collect to be able to really make sense of the data that we'd collected at that point in time. So was there something special about autism spectrum disorder or was that just those were the samples you had? So the genesis of this actually goes back to this uh, era stimulus, curiously enough. So, so the autism project, at least for the data set that we collected for the 2012 paper that Caitlin um, mentioned. So, you know, there had been a longstanding tradition of working in autism spectrum disorders with Mark going back to, you know, the copy number variant discoveries with Laurie Weiss that was published in New England Journal of um, Medicine. You know, so autism was like an active area of research, and it also fits very nicely with the kind of mission of the Stanley Center, where both Mark and I were obviously deeply involved in psychiatric genetics more, more broadly. So um, I think autism was a sensible thing to work on in that kind of space, given the interest in the lab and the interest in the community and, and you know, autism's in a sense special role in psychiatry as one of the most prominent and important childhood disorders to sort of work on. So, so I think there are a lot of good motivations for getting into autism. I don't know, Caitlin, if you've got other ideas. Well, I'd say exactly what you pointed out about partially it was data availability and partially it's special role in uh, the Stanley Center and in psychiatry more broadly. But I'd also add to it that autism, unlike some other complex traits, since it starts in childhood, it's a lot easier to collect trios and therefore to evaluate de novo mutations. I'm sure we would have loved to have done this for schizophrenia or bipolar or many other conditions, but we just didn't quite have the full trio set. And that's what's so critical here. So it's a little bit that it was well-placed to be analyzed um, in this way. Right. So a lot of things came together, which is great. So I know it was a while ago and it feels like we have all aged considerably since 2013, 2014, let me just say, but not y'all, me, of course, you look great. So, but from what you can remember, did the study go as you expected it to, or were there surprises or challenges during the process? I see that there you're both smiling. So. Well, this part of this paper is about creating the mutational model so that we could evaluate this accumulation of de novo mutations in genes, but another part of the paper, to me at least, was a surprise, and that was being able to use that same mutational model to predict standing variation in a general population. And we could then use that, those predictions, to identify genes that were depleted of their expected amount of standing variation. So maybe Mark Daly, who was my uh, PI and the lead of this, as well as Ben, maybe the two of them kind of expected that to happen, but I was not expecting this de novo mutation model to work for standing variation as well as it did. And really that was, I think, a major part of the paper and one of the aspects of it that has become foundational in many other studies by our group and others over the last couple of years. So I'd, I'd agree with what Caitlin's telling of the history with, with a little bit of an accent, which was at one point, I, I figured out what Caitlin just said, that, you know, looking for depleted variation based on the mutation rate expectation could teach us something about a gene and could teach us about which genes are actually more important. And so I got like 
the head of steam, really excited, burst into Mark's office. And he's like, yeah, I've had Caitlin working on that for the last two months. And he just hadn't told me like, so it was like, you know, six weeks, two months later. And I was like, well, I don't mind being two months dumber than Mark Daly. That feels like the right sort of measure of, of myself in, in some ways. Um, but but it, it, it was one of those funny things. And, you know, obviously the population genetics literature is full of this kind of approach. The thing that really materially changed was the nature of the data. We, we actually, you know, and, and indeed, everything that we did was based on looking at surveys of genetic variation in a large sample and using this mutational model to condition that expectation for the number of sites that we would see, the number of like variants of a given class in a gene that we would see. And like, that's a pretty robust statistic. It's actually a, it's also a statistic that's pretty robust to differing demographic histories. And I don't, I didn't really appreciate or intuit or understand that. I think it's probably worth asking Mark whether he like knew that going in at, at some level, but um, yeah, it was, I think the thing that surprised us the most was just how darn well it worked, right? Like this, this nominated a set of genes that were super, super important and super relevant to a number of very, very severe clinical conditions. And, you know, we spent a fair amount of time also talking about integration with the ARVIS, the uh, effort from Slava Petrovsky and David Goldstein. And there was actually a meeting at Cold Spring Harbor about schizophrenia that David, Mark, and I attended with a number of others from the field where we did the initial like side-by-side -side comparison of what constraint was looking like versus what Arvis was looking like. And, you know, I can remember talking to David about how just important knowing these genes are going to be, like just knowing what these genes are is actually super, super important for interpreting particularly severe conditions and like some part of the autism spectrum landscape fits into that categorization, but there's obviously a huge amount of diversity and heterogeneity. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you do differently then? Is there anything you would do differently knowing what you know now and all this time? You would do it exactly the same? Try for danger, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I don't think we knew how important this was then in some level, right? I don't, I don't know. I mean... I think there are clearly some updates to the mutational model that have been incorporated since then. It, it was a pretty straightforward one, you know, the sequence context of the genes, a correction for how well we sequenced in the genes, because exome sequencing, you know, captured doesn't always give you uh, equal reads across all regions. And then a slight correction for their regional divergence between humans and macaques, just to capture some of these larger scale differences in mutation rate. But that's really simple, like three things into this model. And so we potentially could have thought about a couple of other things. We did try um, transcription coupled repair, which uh, had been found in genomes of the Netherlands. We looked at a couple of other uh, early versus late replicating sequences. But part of the issue at the time is we only had the 6,500 or so individuals from the NHLBI's exome sequencing project. So some of these things are obviously quite important when you look at larger data sets and you start to look genome-wide. But in 6,500 individuals, only in coding regions, we couldn't pull signals out at that time. So I think we did a reasonable job for the time period, but certainly there are, are things that could have been done better. I, I think it's also important to flag that there was a bit of a conversation among some members of the community about the 
well, maybe the rate can be the same, but it's where the mutations land. And, and actually that came up a bunch um, more. It, it surprised me how much that came up because that's not the way this works, right? Like if a class of variation is a risk factor, then you should see enrichment of that class of variation in individuals that carry the condition that it is a risk factor for. That's just like a mathematical truth that is inescapable. But there's a temptation because these things are really rare and unusual. And so we don't like have strong a priori expectations. And so there, there was, you know, I, as I, I think happens a lot with science, there's not only like, how do we analyze the data that we have? How do we extract as much information as we can? But how do we also sort of shift the narrative in the community away from like just which mutations into a formal principled statistical framework for evaluating this evidence? And, and I, I mean, we got excited by the other things that you can do with the model, but I think that's also a very, it was a very important contribution at the time. And, and there was a fair amount of resistance to this kind of framework in, even in the 2012 paper where we first sort of wrote down how to do that kind of gene level test in a statistically principled way. Yeah, I agree, absolutely. So Caitlin, at the time you were a trainee, so what did you learn from doing this large study that you have used throughout your research career? Tell us where you are now. So I'm currently wrapping up my postdoctoral fellowship with Matt Hurls at the Welcome Sanger Institute. I will be shifting to an independent group leader um, later this year, location still TBD. Uh, so this was actually one of my first major papers. I had a, a first author paper from my undergraduate, but I think my PI at the time had a heavier hand with writing the paper. I, I had tried to model it. So this is one of my first experiences of being much more independent and leading a bunch of the analyses with obvious mentorship from Mark and Ben and others. I think my major takeaways were that sometimes your mentors ask you to do analyses and at the time you're like, why? This doesn't make any sense. And it really comes together at the end. So to some extent, you have to trust when people are asking you to do some of these things. For example, that comparison to uh, the standing variation at the time I thought was not going to work out and I was absolutely wrong and I'm happy to say that I was wrong. Um, otherwise, I um, am more of a supplement or methods writer, so I like to start there. And the thing that I took away from writing this paper was that I found it easiest personally to write out explicitly what I had done and then to build around figures and save intro and discussion for later, though I, I think a lot of people probably do that. but. You have to figure this out for your yourself. Yeah. Yep. And then Ben, you were uh, transitioning to being an independent uh, group researcher, having your own group at the time. So what did you learn that you've used since then? Uh, I mean, it's a different job mentoring science to doing science. I, and I think that sometimes we don't always teach that difference as much as we could, yeah. even when we're doing the mentoring of the science rather than the, the doing of the science. Um, and I was still kind of doing, right? Like, so when you're early in your sort of independent career, you're, you're leading a double life because you still have like skills that are relevant and useful. You're very motivated to get to the answers. You're like, come on, let's go. And you're not like snowed under with all of the obligations that come with, you know, running a lab. Faculty meetings, right. Yeah, and, and also like being an institutional leader because that's, that's another set of responsibilities that comes with the PI-ship that 
we don't always talk about as explicitly as we can. And it gets like put under this like umbrella of admin, but it's really many and varied and diverse. And it's a lot of different, both responsibilities to your institution, but also to the community writ large in terms of how we distribute results, how we distribute methods, how we make science accessible for a larger set of investigators and also engagement with, you know, the public and, and in, you know, just in general. So you're kind of like learning all of those things all at once when you're starting out and you're like hiring your own people, but you're still very much engaged with the scientific questions of the day and indeed how to interpret this kind of data, how to like systematically evaluate the contribution of an individual gene from a rare variant association point of view was not a settled activity. It was a still in progress kind of activity. And so it was really exciting to still be a part of that. The kind of last thing I'll add is that I stayed in my place. So I did my postdoc and then I moved to faculty. In the and tell us where you are. And I'm at uh, Mass General Hospital right. and the Broad Institute. So I just kind of stuck around and kept working with Mark because it was a really productive working relationship between the two of us. I mean, I can't, I think it's been career defining for me. That's how I would describe it. Um, but there is and, a, uh, there's a wanna... superstition that it's really bad to stay in the same place, right? So how did you break that curse, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that there is value from going to new places because you learn new things and you get exposed to a new group of people and you get like a whole bunch of novelty into your head and that novelty can translate into creativity in your science. And so there is definitely value in that kind of space. I had led a very itinerant scientific life prior to settling in Boston. So I'd done my PhD at King's College in London and my advisor had moved from London to Hong Kong. So I spent some time in Hong Kong and I'd also done prior to my PhD, some like research associate work in Richmond, Virginia, but had traveled a fair amount amongst the community and done, you know, I was like free and easy and spending like six weeks in Australia or something like that, just to soak up those kinds of environments. And there is definite value in learning how science is done in different places. And I think part of the encouragement to not train and stay and just stick is that seeing how science is done in multiple different places allows you to design how you want your lab to do science in a way that can be more inclusive and more accepting of multiple different kinds of models. I also think that with the sort of rise and continued rise of consortium science and kind of, you know, interactions and that kind of capacity, these kinds of long, deeper working relationships where you are in the same place, thinking about the same problems, working on the same data sets, like that there, there, there is little that you can do to replace that kind of sense of camaraderie in the trenches that you get from doing the work together in that kind of way. And so, so moving is good, but staying can be good too if it works, right? Like if, the, if you feel good about the science, if you feel good about the work, if you have the support from the institution to continue pushing the frontier of scientific progress in the way that you think is most important and impactful to learn about, you know, in our case, genetics and biology and why people get sick. Yes, absolutely. And it seems to, you know, y'all have done okay since then. So I think it's all good. No, obviously you've done very well. Can you tell us a little bit about what new research you're currently pursuing? Oh, well, my postdoc has included 
actually some of the follow-ups to this, the question of how to study de novo mutations and identify those that are most likely uh, are most likely to be contributing to disease and identifying new disease genes. So it's been quite a long time since that 2014 paper came out, but it's still the basis of an updated model that um, I was co-first on this last autumn, or this previous autumn called de novo West. The idea is it's a weighted simulation-based testing framework, but we still have that mutational model underlying it. And we added some weights to increase, um, to increase uh, like a posterior probability that it, a variant was important, if that makes any sense. So we know that variants that look more deleterious are more likely to be important, and we use the actual enrichments within our cohort. So that's some of the work. But uh, outside of the de novo space, I'm much more interested in how we can begin to study patterns of rare variation while accounting for multiple variants at the same time. So instead of a single de novo mutation in a single gene in a single individual, how we can look at some of the slightly more common but still rare variants and how they're all impacting networks together to increase risk for disease. And so that's what I've proposed to do for my um, independent research. And on our side, you know, this is now, this model is standardly used in NOMAD for updating gene annotation in a kind of constraint viewpoint. It certainly helped us navigate the sort of apparent recurrent mutation phenomenon that we got when sample size got large enough, like having an understanding of how these sorts of things operate. Because remember, the de novo mutation model is true every generation, not just the generation that we're looking at. And so there's actually like information in the how to think about that as we relate to how we think about the site frequency spectrum as we increase sample sizes and, and all of those kinds of considerations. Um, the autism work continues apace in the Autism Sequencing Consortium. And indeed, that first era grant was the start of the Autism Sequencing Consortium that's still very capably led by Mark and Joe Buxbaum and Stefan Sanders and um, you know, those, those folks. So, you know, there's lots of continued activity to try and understand more about the genetic basis of autism spectrum disorders. And that's still like an active area of, of research. Um, and, you know, generalizing these kinds of things to think about the role of non-coding variation, how we might annotate non-coding variation accordingly, like those things also become possible with this kind of framework, although they also come with a bunch of different challenges because we don't have the decoder ring of variant consequence that we have for the coding regions. And that variant decoder ring is super valuable. It is like really, really, really difficult to overstate just how valuable that was for us to be able to make any kind of substantive progress in understanding which genes matter. Because if we just run constraint, including missense, synonymous, and LOF altogether, we don't, we don't, it, it don't work so good. Indeed. Yeah, that's great. I have a macaque autism related data set. So I'm glad you mentioned that, Caitlin. I'm going to call you. Okay. After this, I'm going to call okay. you. But, um, <laughs> well, listen, thank you both very much for talking with us today. And this has been Genetically Speaking. Thanks, Chris. Thank you.